0: Good morning, St. John's. As we begin a new series in the book of Amos, we have two readings. In the first, we hear about the king who was reigning at that time, Jeroboam. You'll find this first reading on page 384, and it's 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 to 29. In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria. And he reigned for 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Hamath to the Sea of Arabah, in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. The Lord had seen how bitterly everyone in Israel, whether slave or free, was suffering. There was no one to help them. And since the Lord had not said he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash as for the other events in Jeroboam's reign all he did and his military achievements including how he recovered from Israel both Damascus and Hamath which had belonged to Yodi are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel Jeroboam rested with his father's The kings of Israel and Zechariah, his son, succeeded him as king. In the second reading, we hear the opening words of the book of Amos, and that's on page 918 in the Pew Bibles. The words of Amos one of the shepherds of Tekoa, what he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah, and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. He said, The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. This is the word of the Lord. And
1: And let's just pray now. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can trust your word. And we thank you that you have promised to speak to us through it. And we pray for James now as he unpacks this start of Amos to us. Although it's a a book from a long time ago, please, by the power of your spirit, would you speak to our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. What was that? It was a lion. Did you know that a lion roars at 114 decibels? To give you some idea, that's 25 times louder than a petrol lawnmower. It's the same as a chainsaw. It can be heard, obviously with no uh, background noise, between five miles, eight kilometres away. So that means if you're sitting at home in Acton Bridge, or in Winsford, or maybe close to Delamere, or across in Northwich, you'd hear it if it was here this morning. Lions, of course, roar. They roar to communicate their location. They roar to show their strength and mark off their territory and to intimidate lions from other prey. Have any of you, apart from this morning, heard a lion roar? Anyone heard in the zoo? Yeah? Out on safari somewhere in the wild? What did you feel? How did you react? There was a friend called Matthew. He was, um, I was at a workshop with him. And he was telling me he was working as a lawyer in, in uh, Kenya, in Africa. And he went on safari. And they went out for the whole day looking for lions. There was no sign of a lion anywhere. They came back bedding down for the night in their tents and then they heard it. (laughs) You can imagine what kind of night he had. (laughs) What would you say to someone who said, maybe you're on safari, and you said, said, I'm just going to go out into the bush to take some pictures. I've seen some beautiful antelope and then you hear the roar. What would you say to that person? You'd say, don't go. You would say something like, don't ignore the roar. Wouldn't you? You'd be stupid. This morning, we're beginning a series on the book of Amos. I hope you've got it open, page 916, if you haven't, if you're watching online, do turn it up, page 916 in the Bibles, you'll find it, it's in the Old Testament. Look at the index at the start. And there's a little distillation of what Amos says in chapter 1 and verse 2. <coughs> the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. And what would you say if you were preaching on this this morning? You would say, "Don't ignore the roar." <laughs> Wouldn't that's what you, you would say? Don't ignore. It's stupid. Now I wonder what your reaction is at this moment. Waiting, I can see something jumped just then when the second roar came. Maybe you're feeling this roaring is rather distasteful. It's a bit scary. I don't not what sure I want to think of God like that. Maybe there's a certain thrill. The kind of hair on the back of the neck. And maybe you're a bit fed up. You're thinking too often God's treated a bit like a pussycat. You know, on the lap. And you just stroke its tummy and then it purrs. Maybe you're a bit puzzled. You think, how does this picture relate to Jesus? Or maybe you're a bit curious and thinking, what's this roar all about? Why is this lion roaring like this? What is the prey? Well, I say, over the next few weeks, we're looking at the, this book of Amos from the Old Testament. And it's come to me to do something of a little introduction to it. I guess I could do... I'm not sure I could think of the right metaphor to continue the picture. Maybe it's above the savannah, where are kind of a fly by a Cessna or something looking down on it. I thought it would be quite helpful to work with... Um, I don't know if you've come across Rudyard Kipling's little poem. When he talks about six honest serving men, you could have women as well, but he wrote them back then as men. Do you know his little poem? Some do. So this is just a little key in. I keep six honest serving men. They taught me all I knew. Their names are what and why and when and how and where and who. Do you like that? I keep six on my serving. And they taught me all I knew. Their names are what and why and when and how and where and who. So who? Who have we got first of all? Who's this book about? Again, page 916. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa. So Tekoa, this is a fortified town. It's around... uh, Twelve miles south of Jerusalem in Israel, about five miles south of Bethlehem. It's a fortified town. It's not particularly distinguished for anything. There was a wise woman of Tekoa who got something of a reputation as a wise person. But otherwise, it's not really very well featured. But he's one of the shepherds. And maybe you're thinking in your mind here, shepherd. I can just imagine... A little small holding of a few sheep in the, in the field and so on. What's interesting is quite an unusual word for shepherd. It's not the normal one, as like in the Lord is my shepherd. It's the same word that's used of, in fact, the king of Moab, King Mesha in 2 Kings 3, and he, and he's the same word. He's a shepherd, and he has to bring a tribute of a hundred thousand lambs. So he's a pretty He could potentially, Amos, be quite a big-scale shepherd in that sense. He's not a kind of rustic, rural um, person only. We know a little bit more about him later on in Amos, in chapter 7 and verse 14. We won't be looking at that a bit later on in a few weeks. But he says there, I was, or perhaps am, it's not so easy to translate there, I was neither a prophet nor a prophet's son, But I was a shepherd, and I also took care of sycamore fig trees. So a number of things you can pick up from there on this who. He took care of sycamore fig trees. Interestingly enough, archaeologically speaking, you don't find sycamore fig trees in Tekoa. So he's got business elsewhere. Again, you're getting a sense of a, a business person. Of that world of that day, a, tr- a farmer, a, s- a herdsman from that point of view. But he says, Do you notice that I was, or perhaps, neither a prophet nor a prophet's son? And what does that mean? Surely he was, wasn't he going to be a prophet? Wasn't that what he did? I think the whole point is this he wasn't a pro, he wasn't a professional, he wasn't a member of the clergy. Because back in that day, often you'd have the prophets were associated with the royal court. And he wasn't one of those in that kind of way, on the payroll of the king. Now it just so happens that I'm today what's called a self-supporting minister in the Church of England's words. What that means is that I'm not employed by the Church of England and given a stipend by them. So I'm different from Mike and from John here. I'm what's called a self-supporting minister. And you could say, in a sense, Amos is a little bit like that. He's a self-supporting minister. He's a lay reader. Jeremy, you can cheer it on. <laughs> That's a little bit about who he was. you get the feel? What about when? Have a look there. <clears throat> Two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. The point is, the word of God came at a point in history. We don't know whether it was one long sermon or lots of uh, shorter sayings that were collected together, but it's dated by a cataclysmic event of this earthquake. Amazingly enough, this earthquake has left its mark in two different ways. In Zechariah, 200 years later... Zechariah says this, you will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. It was that significant an event. So it's left its mark in the Bible. It's also left its mark, interestingly, in archaeology. So Hazor, one of the cities north, north of Galilee, it was destroyed in various points in history. You can see the layers of the dig if you go there. And one of them was destroyed by an earthquake. So you can probably date this to around 760 BC. It's a little bit like saying, okay, the outbreak of the Second World War. When was that? 1939. You know it from a cataclysmic event. You know the date. September 11th? 2001. You know it from a cataclysmic event. It's the same with that. And then we see, did you notice, it was in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Uzziah, maybe claimed to fame, his other setting, is in the other prophet, Isaiah in the Old Testament, when the year that King Uzziah died, and Isaiah has his vision then. But he wasn't a massively significant king. Judah was quite weak. The real big cheese here was Jeroboam, which is why we had the reading from 2 Kings 14. I hope you managed to follow that. There were quite a few names. It wasn't easy to navigate your way through there. But the key thing about Jeroboam was these were the glory days of Israel. These were the days when their boundaries expanded. They took over Aram in the north. This was the time of success, of military prosperity, of affluence. You've never had it so good. It was also the time of Baalism. Hosea a prophet, prophesied at this time in the northern kingdom. And it was also a time of pride. But if you just notice back here, I don't know if you noticed, this is a brief little history point, which we'll see makes a difference in a moment. Uzziah was king of Judah, and Jeroboam was king of Israel. You might think I thought Israel was one thing. Some may be familiar with this, some of you less so. But in the time of King David, there was one kingdom altogether. And then his son Solomon, one kingdom. In fact, those were the boundaries that Jeroboam restored. But with with uh, Solomon's son Rehoboam, the kingdom split in two. There was an argument between the north and the south. Sounds familiar? And they split in two, and the northern kingdom, called Israel on there, split off from the southern kingdom. In fact, it was another guy called Jeroboam, no specific relation, Jeroboam the first who did that. And they split off the kingdom. So there was this split between the north and the south. And you might think, ah, it's a quite friendly rivalry. You know, we know about HS2 and the northern powerhouse. And North, South. I know we have a bit of banter about it, but it's pretty friendly rivalry. Maybe you could push it up a bit. How about England, Australia at cricket? (laughs) Now that's not friendly rivalry. But it's still reasonable. Push it up further. How about the old firm, Glasgow and Celtic? Yeah, that's pretty hardcore. Maybe push it even further. How about... India and Pakistan cricket or Indian Pakistan in pretty many sporting event there's been a history of warfare and hostility that lies behind that it's much more life and death and did you notice here Amos he was from the south he was from Judah do you remember But what he saw concerning Israel, he has oracles about the north, like a posh southerner coming north, except he wasn't that posh. Or again, you can see in verse 2, the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. That's the south. And what happens? The top of Carmel withers. That's Carmel in the north, the mountain in the north, where Elijah had his contretemps with the prophets of Baal. So you can get the sense, do you see, if we're thinking about the who, the when, and the where. So who? Amos. He's a self-supporting minister. He's a business person who's come from the south. He's come to the north. There's rivalry between the north and the south. This has taken place when the northern kingdom with Jeroboam is affluent, it's successful, it's prosperous, it's doing everything well. It seems to be on a crest of a wave. We've got three more. How are serving men, do you remember? How? The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Ochoa, what he saw The picture you see here, we see in the book of Amos as a whole, you have oracles that he speaks against nations, you have prophecies that he utters, and you also have visions, and that's the word that you have here. The words that he saw concerning Israel. And how did he do this? Well, he was very creative. He used vivid, striking imagery. Just don't ignore the roar. He used striking images. One of my favorite ones is in chapter five. In chapter five, um, remember how prosperous um, Israel is? He raises a lament over Israel. A lament? means if he's died, if Israel has died. Yeah, no, this is a lament because you may think you're alive, but actually you're as good as dead. Full of creative ideas, shocking, surprising. But why did he speak? Well, you don't know yet, do we? From just our little introduction, we don't have a sense of why he speaks. You know that the Lord is roaring. But what about what did he say? I'll ask on what. Does anyone remember Paul the octopus? No? Yes. One, two. Paul the octopus shot to fame in 2000, well not very famous obviously, (laughs) he shot to relatively short-lived fame in 2010. Paul was born in Weymouth but he found his way across to Oberhausen in Germany and he gained great fame for predicting football results. In the Euros of 2008, he got Germany's result right four times. But when it came to 2010 World Cup, he accurately got right all seven of the Germans' matches, including a surprise defeat to Serbia. And proving that he wasn't just a kind of German hit wonder... He predicted Spain's victory over the Netherlands in the final. Well, how would he do this? Well, there was flags draped over the boxes, and then you'd have a mussel or an oyster inside um, them, and he'd go and claim the, f- the, the right one. Some said, oh, well, obviously he's just going for the bright-colored flags, but the thing is octopuses are colorblind, so it couldn't be that. He was so famous that another zoo wanted a transfer fee of 30,000 euros. And the Iran's then president, Ahmadinejad, calls Paul, quotes, "All that is wrong with the Western world." He died three months after the World Cup, 80 um, percent success rate. And look, many people think the Old Testament prophets are a little bit like that. I hope you'll forgive the kind of slightly strange analogy. But their basic job is to predict things. And once they've predicted things, well, that's all over. It's it's a, a quirk, it's of interest, and no more than that. Or a bit like Nostradamus, looking much further into the future. And that's what they do. And they predict an event way into the future. And we tick those events off. And once those events are off, we can put that to one side. Now, prophets did speak about the future. But they spoke about the future for the sake of the present. So did you notice here? It was concerning Israel. Or did you notice here? It's got immediate impact. He, the Lord roars, the pastures of the shepherds dry up, and the top of Carmel withers. You can see a sense with that, that. The biggest word here is that of judgment, that sense of withering and drying up. But in our verses, we didn't have any actual contents. I want to give you a little flavor, and I hope you'll see how different it is from Paul the octopus. Chapter 4, and verse 1. Hear this, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness. The time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. You will each go straight out through breaches in the wall, and you will be cast out toward Harmon, declares the Lord. Or chapter 5 and verse 18. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Or again, chapter 8. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me, a basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos, he asked. A basket of ripe fruit, I answered. Then the Lord said to me, the time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere. Silence. Do you get a feel? it's quite different from Paul the octopus? It's pretty shocking, isn't it? It's pretty direct. It's pretty Uh, out there, vivid, technicolour. Just notice a couple of things in this what, briefly. It's the Lord roars from Zion. This is the Lord, the covenant God, the God who's made himself known by rescuing his people from Egypt. A God who is fundamentally for his people. Now a lion, profoundly shocking a lion who roars, sovereign over earthquakes, sovereign over nations, who rules from Zion. He says, you only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your sins. Speaks against, with firmness, with, against his own people. That's one thing to notice. The Lord against his people. Another thing which is really striking here, did you notice, let's go back here a moment. The beginning of verse two begins, he said. It's not I said, it's he said. You find the same thing in actually in chapter seven where Amos is spoken of in the third person. So the point is that someone has collected Amos' words and stored them in a book. Why? Well, it's because his words are not like Paul the octopus or Nostradamus. It's not just a prediction that once it's happened, that's, that's the end of it. You can see from the content, you can get to see what God likes and doesn't like. You can see what God is like. You can see God's passion for justice and righteousness, for truth and holiness. You can see his concern for a message of hope. And the irony, of course, is this. Israel, the northern kingdom... Sure enough, did indeed come under this judgment in 722 BC, some years after this. And this book was kept. It was taken down south to Judah. Do you remember? Uzziah, the the southern kingdom. And they were supposed to learn the lessons from this book. Because the sense of which those things had all happened but they were to learn the lessons of what God likes and doesn't like. And tragically, Judah, stupidly, unwisely, culpably, didn't follow suit. And so these words come down to us today with exactly that same picture. And the message, the very simple message, what the Lord's saying to us today is don't ignore the raw. Isn't it? Don't ignore the roar. Don't do what Israel did. Don't do what Judah did. How can we do that? How can we not ignore that roar? Some suggestions. How about before the end of the day, go home and read Amos. It takes about 15 minutes. Go read it. Another thing you can do. There's some daily devotionals by Matt Fuller. 31 undated devotions. Seek the Lord and live. I've brought four copies with me. They're two pounds each. You can get, I can can sure you can get some more. Go home and read this. This, this. Make it part of your daily devotionals over the next while. Here's another way. We're getting very high tech here. If you scan that code, you get your phone out and scan that code, it will take you to a site where you can listen to AMOS being read, it will take you less than half an hour. To listen to it being brilliantly read by Max McLean. It's a great thing to do. I can see no one's got that. Th- Don't feel embarrassed if you wanted to get your QR code out and do it. It's that's not, that's not there for effect. Or I can post it up on the screen. Ian, you can post it up, come me somewhere, on the website. Hmm? Put it up at the end, great. The other thing, of course, is week by week, as we come to hear God's word, let's come expectantly, read the passage in advance, prayerfully, pray for the preacher, come wanting to hear what God has got to say to us, and not just as a kind of show on a a pulpit, but not to ignore that roar. How about another way? Lord, I'm really sorry that... Too often I've treated you like a pussycat. I've put you on my lap as a kind of close friend and um, waiting for the purr. And yes, you are wonderfully close. but you are awesome, too. But maybe you're puzzled and think, how does this picture all relate to Jesus? Isn't roaring as he said, rather distasteful, rather scary? Not sure if we want to think of God like this. Well, wonderfully, in the person of Jesus himself, he lived Israel's life. He embodied it in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. He experienced in himself the judgment that was due to God's people. And as we've wonderfully sung earlier, I'd love to have caught those words, but thank you so much, Rob, for choosing um, the songs so helpfully today. Um, in the book of Revelation, do you remember how Jesus is described? He's a lion from the tribe of Judah. Do you remember? He's the, the lion, but he's also the Lamb. He's the Lamb who was slain, who takes on himself the judgment. That all of us deserve. And so we can go free. So I hope. A little introduction. With our six serving men. We will remember. <laughs> Don't ignore. The roar. Let's pray. Just a moment of quiet to reflect. Lord, we're sorry when too often we have a distorted view of yourself. Thank you that we know you are a powerful, mighty, Awesome, God. Thank you also that in Christ, who is the lion, he is also the lamb who's slain for us. Thank you for the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from every sin. Give us your grace by your Holy Spirit, we pray, to listen to you.
0: Amen.